Hi, everybody. Um, so I'm going to talk for a little while, and then I hope this will become interactive quickly, um, because I think there's things that people want to know about cereal. And um, there were many hundreds of hours of cereal that ended up on the cutting room floor. I don't know all of what it was, but I know some of what it was. Um, and I'm about to do something that I do all the time, which is take all the credit for good work. Um, and I'm going to continue to do that as long as the law school allows me to. But I want, um, if there's anyone in the um, Sy Team Syed, as we call our serial team, um, the students who make me look good were Mario Pea, and stand up please, Katie Clifford, Vanessa Vogler, Jessica Saba, Kristen Sauerbeer, Rachel Ashton, Maddie Starbranch, and Amelia Gordon. All of those people did all the work that I'm now going to take credit for. So, um, so the first thing I want to say about cereal is something that a student at, once I'm right off the bat I'm stealing a student's thought. Um, it's a lot of people thought it was an extraordinary case and that um, it had all these unusual facts and factual development and history. To us, that case looks just like every case that we get involved in. And I'm not sure that that's the way to sell cereal, but I think you're all probably already sold. Um, and so I get hundreds of emails and offers every week um, to turn our whole clinic into a podcast and a reality TV series as though we could just litigate in, on open air all the time, um, which we could not. Um, so, but each of the stories is like that, right? It's all textured, it's complicated, it's um, a lot of times we have unresolved issues. It doesn't mean that we don't think the person is innocent, but we can't get answers the same way Sarah did. Um, so how it happened deserves a little background because the truth is we really probably can't ever do what we did in that case again. Um, so Sarah had heard from her client about a case that our clinic got involved in a couple years ago, um, the Justin Wolf case, um, got a lot of notoriety, um, his convictions were overturned. Um, the court said that there was abhorrent uh, conduct by the prosecutors in burying exculpatory evidence. And um, good old Adnan saw a similarity between himself and Justin Wolf. So he asked Sarah to call us and to run certain issues in his case by us. And um, Sarah quickly realized that uh, we were a good resource for her um, in terms of spotting issues that happen in Innocence Project cases and in a lot of death penalty cases as well. So all my years in death penalty post-conviction litigation paid off too because the same things that go into wrongful convictions without the death penalty happen in death penalty cases. And I think um, the last time I checked the Innocence Project uh, website, I think they said there was 152 um, overturned death penalty convictions exonerated people. So that's extraordinary, right? Because that's cases where the prosecutors know right from the gate that that case is going to get review, right? The only cases that get um, mandatory review in the court system are those cases that are death penalty cases. So normally what a, what a defendant is entitled to is a trial and a direct appeal. And then after that, um, post-conviction is up to the person, who is usually pretty bankrupt by that point. Um, if they weren't, if they were, if they had money at all, which mostly they don't. Um, so death penalty cases, you get lawyers almost all the time for post-conviction litigation. Um, the only state that I know of where they don't do that is Alabama, and Brian Stevenson, 
swooped down into Alabama and changed all that. Um, so the cases where the exculpatory evidence gets buried, right, people like to say the phrase is, oh, well, we get it right most of the time. Um, however unsatisfying that feels, we really don't even have a right to say that. Um, because what we really don't know is how often we do get it right. So it seemed really extraordinary to me that in this first case that Sarah was taking on, um, and this was her first case, um, the very first case that I ever worked on too, turned out to be an innocent guy on death row in Texas. Um, so, and when I first did that case with a law firm, the partner kept saying to everybody on the team, you know, it's too bad that you all had this case so early in your career because it'll never happen again. Um, ha, 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 ha. Um, it's happening constantly is what is really happening. And the truth is we don't really know. Um, there's nobody keeping statistics on who goes to trial, who pleads guilty, whether any of those people, nobody's scouring the records. So right now we have, I think between the VIPS clinic and our clinic, we're looking into 16 cases in Virginia. Um, our backlog is hundreds of cases, thousands probably now at this point. Um, so, and in the cases that we take, you know, when you peel back the covers and look underneath, what's not happening in those cases is what Sarah did and what we do in our cases all the time, which is you're doing the work that should have been done the first time, generally. So, um, again, like I like to stand up here and act like we're all really brilliant and and we are, um, but the truth is, it's doing a lot of really hard work, sometimes really boring work, sometimes existential work, and and finding the things that should have been found the first time, and trying to do it 10 and 20 and 30 years later, which is even harder. Um, and the battle in post-conviction litigation is that um, finality is like the driving train in post-conviction litigation, right? If there's a way to procedurally default somebody or exhaust somebody or, you know, say, well, they didn't raise a trial, can't raise it now. Like, finality matters a lot more in post-conviction litigation than than being right. Um, and it's a it's a thing that I want all of you, this is my my begging, pleading final call, is that you all leave, graduate, go wherever you want to go, and then take an Innocence Project case or a, a death penalty case and have the most fun that you'll ever have. And you'll, um, you'll probably succeed because you'll do a whole lot more work and better work than the people did at trial. And then you'll feel really great and then you'll come back and join the Innocence Project Network. Um, so please do that. Um, so the first case that I ever took, and I'm just gonna tell you a little bit about it because um, I just, see, I just did it again. The first case that I ever took, the first case that I ever worked on as a paralegal at a law firm. See how I owned that case? Um, so I had um, gone to Skadden Arps, like probably half the people in this room, with an eye to would I enjoy law school. And I kept going from department to department and thinking, oh, mergers and acquisitions, so interesting. And then after a year, I'd say, oh, I guess I'll do the oil and gas department. So fascinating, all those documents in Tulsa, Oklahoma for six months. And okay, so you get the picture. I wasn't interested. And um, uh, finally I heard that a partner who I'd worked for and suffered through many, many hundreds of hours doing discovery with him had taken a death penalty case. And the ABA had reached out and said, um, 
we have some death penalty cases in Texas, unrepresented guys. Would law firms please step up? Most of these cases, it's not about the guilt or the innocence. It's about the life sentence, getting them a life sentence. And so with that, the partner said, we'll take a case. Um, once I heard about it, he said he was going to take a couple lawyers and one paralegal. So of course, I spent like three days writing this dramatic letter about everything I'd ever done for him. He probably didn't know my name either. Um, and just begging to be put on the case. And later, he convened three lawyers and me and said we'd been selected. Um, ten years later, at my wedding, he admitted to me that no other paralegal had applied, <laughs> which was humiliating. Um, and so, you know, it was, it was Adnan in a lot of ways, right? He was a guy, so I went for my first time to El Paso, Texas, and we just started, me and one lawyer ended up spending probably a year and a half in El Paso. And it was all the elements that go wrong, and maybe even more than Adnan, because Adnan had some money, some family, some resources. This guy was um, in El Paso, uh, living in a trailer with his wife and three children. Um, he didn't have a stellar background. He had a lot of problems with heroin. Um, but he had worked for an elderly couple in El Paso doing yard work, and he, they ended up dead. Um, machete murdered to the back of the head, both of them, and no one really could figure out who it was. And pretty quickly, they said, "Who's ever worked for him, for them?" And that's where his name comes in. So um, his lawyer was had been the prosecutor in El Paso, and this was his first foray into defense, being a defense attorney. Um, the client told us later that the first thing he did when he came in to meet him was throw him up against the wall and tell him to admit that he did it, or you know, and the prosecutors, when we talked to him, said, well, you know, those were tactics that worked as a prosecutor. So I just figured that was the beginning of their love relationship. Um, there were two informants, of course. Um, there was a child eyewitness testimony. Um, and so um, the partner said to, he actually literally said to us, I don't want you people coming back here telling me how he didn't do this. I just want you to tell me what the mitigation is and how we can get him a life sentence. So we waited about two months and then went back, flew back to uh, Washington, D.C. to tell him that we thought he was innocent, which didn't please him. Um, so there was two informants, and one of them said that they were all working in the kitchen and um, in, the, in the jail, and our guy, who had denied involvement to everyone who had ever spoken to him, chose that moment while cleaning pots and pans to share his guilt of this machete murder. And the other guy, the other informant, was the overhearer of the confession. And they both came to trial and testified. The other sort of main witness that the jurors loved was a five-year-old girl who said, um, he lives in a trailer near me, he was friends with his children, and that one day she came home and saw him walking up the street with blood all over him. And so she became the corroborative testimony. Um, so we spent a lot of time with the informants um, uh, eating blueberry pie. I, I think I had more blueberry pie with one informant and coffee than I'll ever have again. And he kept telling the same story over and over and over and said, um, and, and we kept thinking, well, we've been here five times now, right? How often can we go and say, oh, there was one more detail we want to ask you about. And then the sixth time we went, and uh, it was you know two in the morning. His diner was open. He had a diner in Canutillo, nah, Sierra Blanca, Texas. Um, he came, and he, and he was much quieter that time. And he said, 
how long are you people going to keep coming here? And, um, and I kept thinking that the real answer, if I was going to be honest, was you know, forever, because I never want to go back to DC and work in the oil and gas department. I can come forever. And, um, and, and I think that was his day of reckoning, was realizing we are going to just keep coming back. And he stood up from the table, went back to his trailer, came back and said, um, I said, you know, you seem to tell the story every time the same exact way. And he said, well, that's right, because I have what they, what I was told to keep, my testimony, so that if you ever came, I would tell exactly the same story. Even if you came in 15 years, I would have my, so of course, he had, you know, he admitted that he had lied, that he'd never overheard a confession. The other guy then quickly said, well, I was detoxing and I'm usually pretty drunk, so I probably didn't hear anything either. Um, the girl um, told five, six more stories. Um, and then one day, right, I left her trailer and went to the, where he worked, where our client worked, and to try and pick up his records. And as I was standing in the, um, where he worked, in the chili factory, I saw, I asked somebody, show me the job he did. What job did he do? And of course, he mixed the chili powder and turned it into liquid. So of course, what the child saw was him coming home with, anyhow. Um, it's, it's all the same things as what Sarah did, right? Just following up on every, everything that you ever hear or see. Um, and until, literally until the thing is dead in the water, you, you really cannot stop. Um, and in a lot of ways, I, I worked for a man in Georgia for a little while who used to say, um, I used to want to hire brilliant people. I used to want to hire writers. I used to want to hire, but he said, now what I really realize is I just want somebody curious. I want somebody who can't stand not knowing. Um, and so that's what I think Sarah tapped into is that there's this whole world of people who um, can't stand not knowing, right? Like you're here not because of what I'm saying, but because you want me to tell you who committed the murder in serial, right? And I'm not going to. Um, uh, but, but it's a piece of, of our work that I, it really surprised me to see that there was, um, when Sarah told me that she was gonna turn her one show into a podcast, first of all, I have to admit, I had to say, what, what is that? Um, and then I thought, oh, poor Sarah, she's so adorable. She thinks all these people are gonna listen to her podcast. Um, and I really thought that was just nonsense because I thought, well, nobody's, nobody's in courts when we go to court. The reporters aren't covering our cases. Like, they cover the day that somebody gets out, right? But they're not digging through documents and they're not, um, you know, calling us every other day asking if Jay is still living out in Colorado or, you know. So anyhow, um, I, I'm still not quite sure what to make of what she did um, and whether or not it would be as interesting to everybody if Sarah didn't have her hypnotic crack voice that we just all want to get doled out. Um, uh, and if we could, if we had to go to a courtroom, would we go to a courtroom? And, and maybe the, you know, in a lot of ways, I think that a lot of the um, requests that I've gotten are to come to storytelling conferences. Um, which obviously I'm not going to, but they have a point, which is that um, the system, the justice system, and our manners of telling stories in the justice system is some of the most unnatural stuff you'll ever hear, right? When you, there can be fascinating witnesses on, but then the way you have to do a direct exam and the way you have to wait to get an answer on cross or redirect is, 
is a way that's very hard to listen to and not particularly interesting. Um, now we can't all have Sarah Koenig's voice, which sucks. But um, And there are people who are much better at trials than others, but they're not the people who usually end up being the public defender or being um, the prosecutor in cases. Um, well, so does anyone have questions about serial that I could just answer and make this more interesting? Katie, didn't somebody have a serial question that we that they desperately wanted an answer to? Yeah, we had, uh, do you think that the serial podcast hurts or helps the Innocence mm -hmm. Project's work on the case? Yeah, so, so it helps, of course, in that it demonstrates there's an interest. And, and there were people who found pieces of what Sarah revealed to be shocking and insulting. And, um, and it's, I think it's really good for cases to have that awareness be out there, that, um, that a lot of the things um, about the system that we like to say, you know, burden of proof is on the government and presumption of innocence matters. And um, so that's all good. Um, the bad thing <laughs> that none of us foresaw is that a lot of people think that that we can just all play out our cases in that way, right? That, so I can't answer several questions about the case just because hers was a journalistic representation. And we joined her. This is, I guess, this is pretty important. She wanted to, she was telling a story, and she had already gotten permission to tell the story. Adnan, you know, was desperate. He was running out of avenues. She said she wanted to do a story, you know. I, I, it'd be hard to think of a client that we have that wouldn't have taken her up on that. Um, but when we joined, we had to make the decision, are we going to go along with what Sarah's doing, or what, what if these two things, legal and journalistic, crash? Um, and because she had already gone ahead and made the decision to do the story and wanted help, we had to explain that we would help her to the degree we could. Obviously, if we found something bad, we probably wouldn't would ask her not to put it on the radio. The, the reason we joined each other was that decision was already made. Um, and, and, and it clashed a couple times. There was a witness that Sarah wanted to um, interview that I said, well, from my perspective, I wouldn't interview that person until we had DNA results because I would want to confront that person with the DNA results. And so, and she had a story to tell. And she was saying, I, she several times went to her editors and said, Deirdre doesn't want to do X. Can we wait a little bit? And they would say, fine. But at some point, I think they realized Deirdre will keep us all waiting forever. And so they went ahead and did their interview. And you know we could still go and do it ourselves later. But so things like that happened. But the idea that um, that 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 animal can happen all the time is not you know good. So I get emails from people who say, um, you know, Sarah Koenig has a website where she posts the results of some of the things she does. Where is your website to, to post all your legal documents? And I thought. Mm got some explaining to do here. Um, was there another? This one's more specific, but I guess for those of you who have heard the podcast, um, one of the key witnesses in the case was a guy named J, and he changed his testimony a couple times to the police and ultimately at trial. And so the question is, what do you make of Jay's testimony changing so many times? Do you think that? means anything, and what's your opinion on that? Did everybody in this room listen to Serial? Is that sort of? Um, so 
the question is, you know, what do we make of Jay Wilds changing his testimony and changing it significantly? And that was part of what brought Sarah to us in the beginning was there was a, a similar person in the Justin Wolf case that we worked on in 2010 um, and had a hearing in the federal district court in Norfolk. Um, and it was the person, the shooter, right? It was the guy who had done the murder. They had, they had apprehended him. And at first he wouldn't talk. And then the he finally said, he finally said what everybody says at some point is, which is, can I get a deal out of this? Um, and they were saying, the police were saying to him, what's the deal for the shooter? You know, you shot this guy. What, you know, there's not much of a deal for you. And he said, oh, well, what if I give you the higher ups? And it was a drug murder, or it was at least arguably a drug murder. And he said, what, you know, what if I give you the higher ups? And they said the critical bad answer was, we want you, you only get a deal if you give us Justin Wolf. And so there it was planted, this is who you need to identify, right? Not the people you offered, but this is the person. So in some ways we wonder if Jay Wilds wasn't that person, right? He gets caught, he's the body, he's buried the body. Somebody said he was involved in that. And then somehow he figures out, you know, I don't want to give up the person who I really did this for because that person's dangerous. So that was piece of it in Justin, in Justin Wolf's case was the people that ordered the hit, if, if such a thing happened, those people kill people. He kind of knew that. But you give up the person you're not afraid of, right? You give up the person that, you know, Adnan Syed, you know, not a, not a player, not a drug dealer, not a guy who has guns, right? So that's the thing that we have pursued is that everything that, that Jay Wilds offers up is just taking Adnan out of the um, story and putting Adnan in the story and taking out whoever really did it. And it's it's a not uncommon little scheme that we've had in many of our cases. Um, and it all starts with the suggestibility, right, of giving people the right answers, whether you mean to or not. Um, does anybody have, did that answer the Jay Wilds question? Um, you mentioned the Yeah, I mean, I think she she did a great job of uh, of showing people and and keep in mind like that was a case where a lot got done like more was done for Adnan Syed than pretty almost I can think of one client in our clinic who had a lawyer that did that much work. Now I admit as everybody that listened did that um, she started sounding pretty grating. I would have wanted to convict or murder someone at the end of that trial if that's what I had had to listen to. Um, and there were reasons and but she did a lot of work, right? Um, but the idea that like physical evidence in that case, that was one of the little funny little things that happened, right? Was that when I talked to Sarah early on, I was thinking about Hay being murdered and found in a park, partially buried, and of course I immediately thought, God, I'm, somebody did a perk kit on this woman, I'm sure, right? A physical evidence recovery kit, you would do that. And she said, no, that's the weird thing, nobody did that. And I said, 
oh, Sarah, I, that's, I just don't believe that. Like, that just wouldn't happen. And then she said, well, there's a report that said somebody in the medical examiner's lab did a slide and she couldn't see any sperm. And I was like, well, they're not real big. Like, you're not going to see that on a slide. And, um, and then she, you know, Sarah did her, huh, well, that's, well, yeah, I guess that's right. And, and I said, did somebody really write that in a report? Nobody saw any, you know. And so that was the beginning of me thinking, oh, there's a physical evidence recovery kit, right? It's just one they didn't want to test. And the prosecutor didn't want to test it because they had their guy. I'm, this is me speculating. Um, but they have Adnan. And let, you know, don't muddy the water with somebody else's sperm. And the defense probably, now I don't know if, if the lawyer in this case just sort of thought, well, I guess there isn't anything to test. Or if she just sort of moved on to what her theories of defense were and decided not to go there. I, I don't know. And she's dead and we'll never know. But like that seems like something that you would think, I would think, that can't happen, right? You can't have a perk kit on a woman that's dead and nobody looks at it or tests it. And, and there were other things. There was a hair on her body that belonged neither to her nor Adnan. There was DNA on the lip of a bottle that belonged to not, no one that they knew. So like, I look at something like that and think, even Sarah had presumed that because no one saw any sperm, there wasn't any physical evidence. And I find things like that really still shocking, even though I know that they happen all the time. And so the confidence that people have in this, in a system, and, and in an adversarial system, right? So Edgar Coker was one of, was our first client ever. And he was a 15-year-old boy who was accused of raping, uh, forcibly raping a 14-year-old girl. And, um, he was pushed into a plea deal because they said he had confessed to a law enforcement officer and that confession you know was going to sink him and they had uh, swabs and things but they chose never to test it once he pled guilty because they thought well we got the guilty plea no sense in sending this to the lab seven years after litigating for seven years we finally got a hold of the confession and it wasn't a confession. It was him saying, I didn't do anything, right? But there's, that's totally shocking to me that that piece of evidence, all those years, trial, direct appeal, post-conviction, you can't get your hands on that thing that says, this is no confession. Um, and so those kind of things still shock me, and I'm glad they shock everybody else because um, I think people need to know that it's sort of what you pay for. You get what you pay for. And so when we pay people as low as we do in Virginia, which is, I think, one of the bottom, in the bottom third of all states, um, there's a cap on felonies and you can make this much and you can appeal to go over that cap. But so to prove Edgar Coker was innocent took our clinic, our students, VIPs, you know, seven years. There's nobody in the world that could pay for that sort of litigation all to say that this 15-year-old boy didn't rape this 14-year-old girl. And through almost all of that litigation, the victim was standing with us, her mother was standing with us, everyone saying this thing didn't happen. And still seven years of litigation. And you know, so people, it looks like, I sometimes think it looks like in the news, you see the guy getting out, you see everybody hugging and crying, you see everybody smiling and saying, I've got no bitterness. Um, I will never say I have no bitterness, by the way, never. Um, I'm only bitterness. Um, but anyhow, um, those, it, it would be 
it would be so much better for us if people knew the fighting that goes into getting to that day. And, the, and so some of, the, some of the silliest stories have to get told to hold on to finality instead of exposing the truth. And um, the great thing about working with Sarah and us, where we, where we dovetailed, was that neither of us were wed to an outcome, right? So I, I sort of have this, you know, if we find bad evidence, we find bad evidence. Sometimes it matters, sometimes it's fatal. Sometimes we don't know what it means. Like, but, but we're not gonna be afraid to knock on a door and we're not gonna be afraid to look at a lab report. And we're not gonna be strategic about what we're looking at. Like we have to deal with it and we have to deal with it right up front. And Sarah had the same sort of, you know, uh, she likes Adnan a lot, but that doesn't matter. And we like our clients a lot too, and, but it can't matter. And so, you know, watching, people should know about, like in Justin Wolf's case, right? So he gets overturned, um, his death sentence is overturned, all his sentences are overturned. He's returned to Fairfax. Um, the initial prosecutors step off the case. Uh, the second prosecutor, special prosecutor steps in, and in 22 hours, he re-indicted him on even more serious charges and said, He's as guilty as they come, and he's the worst of the worst. And now he's back at square one, 14 years later, you know, starting over. It's as though all the work that we did showing who else probably did the crime and showing all the things that people did to massage that into a conviction, it's as though all that work is out the window and they're going to start again. And, um, and I keep, when I go to court in that case, all I do is sit around and think, there's no press here. Like, there, this has begun again, and nobody's watching. So for that purpose, I'm so grateful for Sarah and for what she's doing because, you know, it's shining a light, and and it's a light that we can stay. We have to be able to stand that light. So, yeah. So Jay gave an important <laughs> interview uh, to the online establishment. I'm wondering, what do you think of this interview? How does that affect Adnan's uh, appeal? Jay couldn't have been nicer, is my opinion of that. That was the kindest thing that Jay will ever do for Adnan. I mean, I found that whole reaction, the people that wouldn't talk to Sarah, but then went and did, I don't even know if you can call them interviews, but um, I couldn't imagine. So uh, not only did Jay do those interviews, but didn't he represent that he was told to do those interviews, that his lawyer encouraged him to do those interviews? I think that's right. I can't imagine who would ever tell Jay Wiles that it would be a really good idea to, to give an interview, admit that you perjured yourself at the original trial, and then tell a story that's completely different? Like, I, I thought that was shocking and totally helpful to Adnan. Um, I thought it was shocking that the prosecutor gave um, interviews to the same, right? Didn't he? He also went to the same uh, online. Um, I've, I, I would have sworn to anyone who asked me that he would never do that. None of them would. So uh, he was supposed to do, I think the prosecutor said he was going to do three interviews, and then he only did two. So it's possible that a lawyer, a good lawyer, got to him and told him not to talk anymore. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, serial questions? Serial? Oh, I have an NBC targeter. That's fine. Okay. Um, I'm just curious about how, first of all, how busy Oh, they get to me. Yeah, how, how, how do they find 
Um, okay, so one of her questions is how do the clients get to us? Um, and then the other is how much work do we have? Um, so they can write letters to the clinic, right? And they just, it's just a usually an indecipherable letter where innocence is written in block letters about 5,000 times. And um, so they write a letter. Um, and we have people review the first letters and decide which are ones that are ask, are saying, I'm factually innocent and I don't have a lawyer. And I'm in Virginia, usually. Um, then we send a questionnaire that asks many more detailed questions. And we ask them to sign a waiver so that we can look for things, we can gather anything we want without a promise to do anything necessarily. Um, and so that's one way they come to us. The other way they come to us is lawyers in Virginia who have a client who they're pretty confident got wrongfully convicted. So we just got a case this semester where, you guys are gonna love this. Um, so a, a father-son running an automobile parts store out in the country in Northern Virginia, start noticing that their bin of catalytic converters out in the yard keeps getting raided. People are coming and stealing catalytic converters. And they do the self-help remedy of setting up a deer camera to trigger still photos whenever someone shows up. And so sure enough, they capture a grainy image of two people stealing catalytic converters. And then they decide to also deputize themselves and decide who's in that grainy photo. And they decide that it's a guy who used to work for them a year and a half before, and he had left to go do a similar job somewhere else. And so they, they decide that it's him. So they go to law enforcement and they say, our cat catalytic converters are being stolen and it's this guy. Um, and so the cop goes and arrests him and um, it takes a while, I think it's when he was being, um, they first went to his apartment and they knock on the door and they said he was being somewhat um, uh, unmanageable when they first woke him up and he came to the door. But it turned out later that that was because he was deaf and he hadn't put in his hearing aids. So his original um, unwillingness to cooperate was based on the fact that he couldn't hear them. And so it, it doesn't appear that at any point anybody looks at that image, or it's very late in the game, when they look at the image and think, huh, I wonder why Jason stole catalytic converters with another person without his hearing aid in, because the person in the photo doesn't have a hearing aid. And later, you know, because if you're deaf, you really want to be without the one thing you really need when you commit a robbery. So anyhow, he says he won't plead guilty because he says he's innocent, right? They lobbed on more charges on him to force him to plead guilty. He says, well, now I have to go to trial because now I'm charged with all these things and I can't. So they go to trial. He's convicted. Um, and he's sitting with his probation officer who's doing the pre-sentence interview to figure out what prison to put him in. And Jason tells the probation officer, well, they say I was stealing catalytic converters, but I wasn't. And the probation officer says, wow, I'd like to take a look at that photo. And he goes and looks at the photo and says, oh, I know this guy. He was one of my probationers. This isn't Jason. This is the guy I know. So, so he got convicted. And now he's there. he did not go to prison, thankfully. Um, but we still have to expunge his record. And we still have to write a writ of actual innocence. We still have to interview the jurors who found him guilty, right? Like this is, to me, this is, why did anybody bring this case to begin with, right? Um, but anyhow, 
Uh, so that lawyer called us and said, okay, well, my client who got found guilty um, was just found, found innocent by the probation officer. And so can you come in and do this case? Um, sometimes, like Justin Wolf, right, he was on death row and he had lawyers, uh, King and Spaulding was representing him. And so the lawyers at King and Spaulding had a contact at the Resource Center and they said, you should go get Deirdre and Matthew and their kids because they'll run, they'll do the investigation and, you know, you'll get what you need. So it's like it comes various ways. We have a backlog, but if something like Jason, you know, comes in and a lawyer says, can you help me do this? We just do that. And that's the beauty of Katie and Vips, right? We have 75 people. So when um, Adnan's, we got to have an Adnan team because that team with Mario and Katie, and they had just finished their case. And so literally I could say to Sarah, I can just give you a team right now. And they, well, they were amazing. Anyhow, that was an amazing team. But so having the VIPS group makes us available to people in a way that most clinics aren't. So, you know, the Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project, they teach at various schools and have a clinic at each school, but nobody in Virginia has 12 and 75. It's, it's an army. <laughs> um, and they're all amazing, and I take credit for their work all the time. Um, yeah. I have a serial question. Wait, okay, so Jay, <laughs> you're blowing my mind. Yeah. Um, so you're thinking neighbor boy is Adnan? No, Susan Sherman, who writes, has a blog called- Susan Simpson, is it Simpson? Simpson? Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. um, she hinted in a Reddit AMA that um, neighbor boy probably did see a body in the back of a car, the infamous trunk pop. Mm-hmm. So that is, we do sort of, that's one of our theories, is that there was a bad person who did something to Hay and then enlisted Jay's help, right? Now, I do know about Neighbor Boy. I know who he is. I know where he is. And I think there is reason to believe that he did actually see what he saw. Um, not that Adnan was involved, or I certainly not uncovered anything that suggests, um, to be fair to Adnan, I should say, I haven't uncovered anything that suggests Adnan was involved. But so when we found the alternate suspect in that case, so the Ronald Lee Moore piece, and I don't know if anybody, but um, what we've been doing in our clinic a lot and it's been working is foying, uh, like carving out a time and a geography and asking state police or local police to tell us if similar things happened in a similar time frame, in a similar, and it's a lot of visiting cold case sites and looking at things. And so when we first heard about Ronald Lee Moore, you know, we were thinking, 
all right, if he's out of prison, you know, we've got a ball game, but if he's in prison, um, and so Ronald Moore also lived near Jay, and he was a substance abuser, and Jay was a substance seller, and so, you know, it's all speculative at this point, but when I heard that Ronald Moore had been <laughs> let out of prison accidentally, 10 days before Hay was murdered, like, I immediately have the reaction of, the guy who's done things like this before is a whole lot better than the, the teenager who people think he just couldn't live in a world where a girl broke up with him. Like, you know what I mean? I just sort of weigh those and think, that one just makes a lot more sense to me than that one. Um, but I forget who it was, but someone has told us that the neighbor guy, neighbor boy, whatever they call him, um, there's more evidence that confirms that he saw a body than his take back. And it makes sense to me that um, Jay's, Jay had a really a criminal family, right? And that they, and his grandmother's house was right there across from Leakin Park. And now he's placing himself back at his grandmother's house, like in his subsequent statements, right? That's part of why I didn't understand why he would ever say anything like that. But it just seems like there's no shortage of those kind of people in, Jay, in Jay's life. Um, did I answer your question? Not really. Are you allowed? To, are you speculating that, that Jay might have been acting as somebody's a, boy? Some, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I that we we openly speculate about that that he was that he was doing something for someone, or um, because I don't really see I don't see why Jay would want to have to do this. Like I don't see anything in his history that would mean he would be motivated to kill Hay. Um, I've heard people talk about the, the um, hey catches Jay with the, you know, and, but that seems to me kind of as silly as Adnan can't live in a world where a girl breaks up with him. Adnan wasn't acting very religious, you know, this whole theory of the dark Muslim that had honor issues. He was smoking pot and playing lacrosse, like, he wasn't very Muslim. Um, so anyhow, but if you guys solve it, please let us know and we'll, I'll take credit for it. Um, <laughs> Any other questions? Yeah. Uh, is the project, do you, you guys only take cases where there's uh, an issue of factual guilt or that, you're, that you find is compelling, or do you take procedural issues that are gross errors? So, so we, part of the network of innocence projects is that you know, we shouldn't be in the business of doing um, like partial innocence, like, well, I did murder her, but I didn't rape her, or, you know, and, and to the, for the most part, we don't do that. Um, the, the cases where you can prove things are almost, it's 90% factual intensive labor, right? It's not usually um, clever legal arguments. Um, recently, last week in Virginia, um, one of our cases got a new ruling that said, um, if it creates new law in Virginia, if a prosecutor withholds exculpatory information and you go ahead and file everything that you could file and then find out about this exculpatory stuff at the end, you are now allowed to go back and file a second state habeas using that Brady. So the Brady part is sort of the fact piece, but it is a procedural argument, right, that you now, we now have available to us. So we will be, you know, seizing the moment and looking at all our cases and saying, who has Brady violations and can we go back? Um, but for the most part, the innocence cases are factually um, based. And maybe, 
and maybe that's going to change, right? Um, so the New York Innocence Project, they only do DNA cases, right? That's all they do. They're looking for physical evidence. They're retesting. Um, that's not what we do. And when you guys all leave and go take these cases on as private lawyers, you can do the DNA cases if you want, but ours are much more interesting, right? Where you're having to go out and find all these new facts and evidence. Um, I'm trying to think of a case where we there was a simple procedural Ah, Bennett Barbour. So yeah, so one we did have a case a couple years ago. Um, Bennett Barbour was accused of raping um, a woman. It was a white undergraduate at William and Mary. He was an African American guy. He had he was so far from her description, her initial description of her attacker. Um, he was five three. He weighed 113 pounds. And lo and behold, as they always have in these cases, he had brittle bone disease. So he had broken every bone in his body multiple times. He's a, he was frail as can be. She described a guy who was 5'8", 180. Um, she said they fought. He fell off the bed. She fell on top of him. He had a gun. Bennett didn't have a gun. Anyhow, um, he had an alibi. He, he had an alibi that wasn't even his family. He had non-family member alibi, which is... You know, people never believe family members, but usually when there's some strange person, um, none of it mattered. He was convicted. He was went to prison for rape. Fifteen years later, as part of a project for the Department of Forensic Sciences here in Virginia, they started testing evidence that had never been tested before because DNA wasn't available at that time. And not only did they get a cold hit on a known serial rapist, but they excluded Bennett Barbour. So literally, we just filed a writ of actual innocence based on DNA. Um, filed, it went straight to the Virginia Supreme Court. The Attorney General joined the motion. Um, but that's, that's kind of what you have to have, like to just have the clean, procedural, straight exoneration is not just, I'm not the guy, but and here is the guy. Um, the beauty of that case was that it only came to us after lab report had been sent to the prosecutor um, to tell everybody involved. And after nothing happened for 18 months, we got the lab report and uh, sat down in 10 minutes. We found the victim, now married, new name, but wasn't hard with the William and Mary alumni website that we looked in. And then we found white pages or something and found Bennett Barbour, who we needed to. And so I called the prosecutor and said, we're going to file. You know, I got this lab report. And he goes, well, I got to tell you, you know, I got that report 18 months ago, but you know, the, you'll never find them. Can't find the victim. We can't find the defendant. And I was like, dude, want to got a pencil? <laughs> I'll give you that. Um, anyhow, so he then said, um, his initial reaction was, I don't know what I'm going to, I don't know what, other than exonerate Bennett Barbour, I don't know what we're going to do. And I said, well, for, you're going to go get your serial rapist, right? And he said, well, I don't think I can do that because there's already been a conviction of Bennett Barbour, which, and so, you know, the idea that he didn't think initially that he could prosecute somebody with DNA, right, because of Bennett Barbour getting convicted. Um, and he was a serial rapist who had just gotten out. He was in their community wandering around, right? Now, he has since been convicted. And to his credit, he did try and argue in his d defense that it was really Bennett Barbour. And I think he tried to say they had consensual se I don't know. But anyhow, it was one of those cases where you think, like, um, but for the DNA cold hit, he would have remained 
a convicted rapist. Aren't I cheery? <laughs> yeah. I have a question for you about what you guys talk about regarding the autopsy report. Um, same, I read about it just like online, and it was fascinating to me because it seems like so much attention was given to the trunk pop and oh, it would come get me at Best Buy, and I saw her in the trunk, and da da da. And it seems to me like it's very doubtful she was ever in a trunk. Um, and that to me like was such a crazy, the fact that it seemed like full, that there was pretty good evidence that she was face down somewhere for a minimum of eight hours based on the way that the, the blood pooled in her body right. when they found it. So again, to me, that was such an interesting fact. That and, and something that you were, well, and so you're saying, and why didn't the medical examiner have to address this issue that if you yeah, were folded yeah, up in the trunk of a car? Yeah, right. You know, but so much about the trunk pop, and she was in the car, and I saw her in the car, and he saw her in the car. Seems like she was probably never in the trunk of a car. So how? Well, and if she, if my theory always was that if she was, when they found her face down, she wouldn't be face down the way she was face down, right? Yeah. Right. So I don't know why, why was that never. Well, and that seems like something that Christina Gutierrez, who you know, the New York Innocence Project knew all about her and said she had at one time been a fabulous attorney <coughs> and was they used her to train people to do capital cases. But like that seems like something I don't, especially when you have a mistrial and then another trial, you have time. If you missed something the first time, you now have a chance to get it again. And I can't explain, like that doesn't seem like something she would miss in a good day, on a good day. But then why didn't anybody like, you know, you would think at the very least that prosecutors would assume that they're gonna have to deal with that, right? That you're, you're, gonna, you're gonna take a hit on this because she's not folded up and, um, yeah, I don't know. The other beauty of that case too is this wouldn't happen in Virginia, but all the recordings and the, tr you know, the getting to actually watch sentencing and like how, that was such a wonderful thing for that, for her show and for her to actually be able to watch. We wouldn't, Katie, have we ever had a recorded, um, I don't, I can't think of a recorded trial that I've ever watched in Virginia. Yeah. Some interrogations. Right. The end of interrogations. Yeah, I can't explain that. But when you take a case, um, when you graduate, don't do that. Um, you won't. You guys also, when you go graduate and go somewhere really seriously, find a resource center and find an innocent or an innocence project and partner with them on a case. I really think everyone, with, like the law firms that we work with, the case we did last week at the Vir Virginia Supreme Court, we did that with McGuire Woods. We did Justin Wolf with King and Spalding. We, Michael Hash happened with Hunt and Williams. Those guys love their pro bono cases and they work them to death and it's really, it's great, and they get great publicity, and everybody gets courtroom experience. So, and you know, we'll help. We have time for one more question. Okay. Yeah. 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 Who? I can't see. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, one of the things that made serial at least seemingly compelling was this notion that there was this gross abrogation of justice in this case, you know, and it seemed obvious to anybody who listened to the facts. And I'm wondering, in your experience with the Innocence Project and just your general sense of the law and cases that you've seen, is that is it as anomalous as it seemed, you know, the situation in Serial that it seemed like this was such an extraordinary case? Or is it more that happens all the time and the fact that Adnan Syed was such a compelling personal character that his personality was such 
that that played into what made Serial such the, the perfect confluence to be so popular. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Well, so a couple things. I think I think all these cases look a lot like Adnan's. Our cases all look like that, but in different ways. So in Adnan's case, you have a really smart defendant. Like Adnan is more articulate than a lot of our clients just because of who he was. And he has a family that comes from more means than most of our clients do. And he, like compared to what a lot of our clients get, he got a lot in terms of services, like a six-week murder trial. I don't think we've ever had a six-week murder trial case ever, like one week, two weeks, maybe, in Virginia. Um, and that was a paid attorney, right? And they, she kept giving, the family kept giving her money when she needed, you know, more experts and more things. So, um, so in a lot of, he was anomalous in that he got more, right, than, rather than less. Um, but that said, um, something was going on with that lawyer, right? Something wasn't go something was wrong for her at that point in time. And I don't know if she, her people in, in her office weren't telling her, you know, that she's not sounding good, looking good. You know, I don't know what she was taking. There's money issues of she was taking money and it's not clear where it was going. So I look, I think that even though she probably was a good attorney, she probably was ineffective in, in his case, whether a court would say that or not is a different thing. But like in our world in Virginia, she could, she, unless she did some critically wrong thing, um, people would say that he got enough, he got, that's enough. Like you, when you think of the world of ineffective assist, assistance of counsel, like I always just think, was she drunk? Was she asleep? Like that's the, because you can be those things, like that's okay. So um, you have to do a lot wrong. Now if it turns out that the DNA clears him and she told him there was no DNA, like that would be ineffective or you know something huge like that. But in a lot of ways he did better, he fares better. Um, and he got six weeks to tell his story. Now, probably they shouldn't have taken all those six weeks to tell the story. Like, I think once you make things very, very complicated, and like, I'm sure most of you agree with this, when you listen to Jay getting crossed by Christina, like, you feel bad for Jay. Like, <laughs> he seems like a pretty stand-up guy who um, is owning up to his piece of something, and. You know, I don't think she did. Um, it, I don't think it worked as a strategy to give him time to give the jury time to start feeling bad for him. Um, but anyhow, Maryland also we learned a lot about Maryland. It's a it's a far more defendant friendly state than Virginia. So they got a lot of resources and they got a lot of leeway um, more than you would get here for sure. Everybody sick of me now? <laughs> um, all right. Well, thank you for having me.